All right, well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This morning we are going to be looking at verses 17 through 26. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 17 and then reading through the end of the chapter. Well, if you're up to date on current events, you know the world is at war. Uh, There is war in Ukraine, there is war in Israel and in Gaza, and there's a real threat that the conflict is going to spread. We don't know what the future holds, but we know uh, that these are the sorts of days that that will test you, and they are the sorts of days that call for courage from God's people. Even with all the breaking news that's on on the TV and and, in our news feeds, the truth is that very little has changed for the believer. Jesus told us that in this world we will have trouble. In Matthew 24, he told his disciples that wars would come and they would go. He told them that nations and rulers would rise and fall. And he said that all these things must happen before the end. He assured them and he assures us that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the marching orders of the Christian do not change whatever circumstances we find ourselves in in the world. The truth is that the greatest threat that we face is not the wrath of Russia's nukes or the despot tyranny of Xi Jinping. Our greatest foe and our greatest struggle is against the authorities. It is against the cosmic powers that are over this present darkness. Our struggle is against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, against the desires and the influences of our own fallen flesh. The Christian is called to fight a war that is behind the wars. Our Lord has sent us to engage spiritual strongholds, arguments, lofty opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. We wage a war against our own flesh and against the spiritual powers that are at work in the world around us. We are at war with Satan himself, the one who the scriptures call the spirit of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience. He is a terrible foe. He is a like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. His aim is to kill and destroy. He is our ancient enemy whose power is greater than ours. And yet, as we sang just a few moments ago, we do not need to fear his wrath because we belong to one who is stronger than he is. One little word shall fell him. Satan is a defeated foe although he is still dangerous to us. And so we are told by our Lord to take up courage and to arm ourselves against this enemy so that we may resist him and continue in our conquest in the name of King Jesus, who has overcome through the blood of the cross. This needs to be said. And the reason it needs to be said is because it is all too easy for us to grow comfortable in the position that we are and to forget we have been called to engage the world around us, that Christ calls his people to be a people of action. In the years since Christ commissioned his church, our mission hasn't changed. And as, we, as Brad read for us from Ephesians 6 earlier, we are told to finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, that we are to take up the whole armor of God to withstand in the evil day, and then having done all that, to stand firm. Paul says, Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
and to have as our shoes for our feet, not Nikes, but to have the readiness of the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, we are told to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and to take on our head the helmet of salvation and to bear in our hand the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. As we come to the book of Deuteronomy, we are coming to a point where God is bringing Israel into the promised land. God brought them against kings and nations that were stronger and in many ways greater than them. He brought them against cities that had never fallen. He brought them against heroes who had never lost. He brought them against the very giants who had struck so much fear into their parents that they had rebelled against the Lord and tried to go back to Egypt. But God did not bring Israel into the land expecting them to take it by their own strength. He brought them there to give them the land by his own mighty hand. All he required of them was to face their enemies and to take the field by faith under the shadow of his victorious banner. Let's begin this morning by reading what Moses had to say to the people to prepare them for this fight. Please stand with me as I read our passage. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting at verse 17 and then reading to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is in them or take them for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, these words were spoken by Moses to encourage and embolden Israel to face their enemies. As I look at what Moses had to say to the people of Israel, I think it becomes quite clear that the real threat to Israel was not the sharp blades of Canaanite warriors. It was not the strength of their shields. It was not the speed of their chariots. No, there was a greater threat that needed to be faced and destroyed. Three enemies which would seek 
to make Israel disobey and fall from the Lord into disaster and defeat. We have the enemy of fear. We have the enemy of dissatisfaction and discontentment. And finally, we have the enemy of covetousness and idolatry. Moses' goal in this passage is to equip and arm the people to face these enemies and to defeat them by putting their faith in the Lord. By extension, this passage is meant to equip and instruct us as we wage this same war within ourselves against our sin and our fallen flesh and overcome them by faith in Christ and the power of his victory for us. And that really is the main point, the main idea that we're meant to take from this passage with us. Christian, live in the victory that God has won for you through Christ. Face your enemy and overcome by faith. As we look at this passage, I want to identify three enemies that we must face if we are to live in obedience to Christ in this world. And then I want to show you how God means for us to overcome them through faith. So we'll be looking at the enemy of fear, the enemy of dissatisfaction, and the enemy of covetousness and idolatry. So let's begin by looking at uh, this, the enemy of fear. Fear is the first enemy that Moses identifies here, which the people of God must face in this warfare of faith. <clears throat> Nothing threatens the obedience of God's people quite like the enemy of fear. Fear, its goal is to suppress you to keep you pinned down, to slow and even stop you from advancing on the objective that God has set before us. Fear's goal is to make you feel vulnerable by undermining your faith in the power and the goodness and the faithfulness of God himself. It is like a poison gas designed to terrify you and immobilize you to make you ineffective on the battlefield. Now, fear in and of itself is really not a bad thing. It really has more to do with what we're afraid of uh, and what we do with that fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, that deep awe, reverence, respect, and love for the Lord is different than the kind of terror that Satan will try to use to scare us out of disobedience to God. The fear of the Lord, which the Bible commends, is not the spirit of fear that Moses is speaking of here, which, which seeks to drive people away from God. That sort of fear is the adversary that God's people are called to face. In verse 17, Moses tells the people, if you say in your heart, so there's secret questions, secret thoughts, boiling in the heart of a person on the, on the edge of battle. These nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. Now, humanly speaking, I think you would be right to say that Israel had every reason to have fear as they went into the land of Canaan. Yes, God had multiplied them. God had made them into a great nation. But compared to the people who were already living in Canaan, Israel's not what you would call an overwhelming force. They were slaves, not soldiers. They had more experience with bricks than they had with swords. For 40 years, they had been wandering in the wilderness with no home, no base of operations, and no allies to help them in the fight. The Canaanites, on the other hand, were well established. They knew the terrain. For 400 years, this has been their home. Their warriors were battle-hardened and well-equipped. 
They had horses and chariots. They had an organization with cities that were, had well-defended walls. The sons of Anak lived in the south, men who were giants, the predecessors, the ancestors of Goliath. An Israelite might be forgiven for feeling outmatched in this fight. The, 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 the parents of this generation of Israel certainly felt that way when they had come to Kadesh Barnea 40 years before this. They balked at the report of the 12 spies who had gone into the land, who returned and said, yes, this land is good. It is flowing with milk and honey. But there's a problem. Uh, there's giants in the land, and we're like gnats to them. If we go in there, they will swallow us up, and they will also destroy our children. It was only Joshua and Caleb who pled with the people to the point that they were almost stoned to death, who, who called them to, say, to try to break them of this fear. Fear won the day, that day in Israel's history. So as Moses speaks to this new generation of Israelites, I think it is plain to see that he is remembering how their parents responded to this, how they rebelled against the Lord and allowed the fear of man to control them, to override the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge and obedience. But while we don't see Moses disputing that there's a threat against Israel that is real and it is dangerous, we do hear him telling the people not to be afraid, not to let their fear control them as it did their parents. Rather than saying, he's not downplaying the threat. What he is doing is he's saying, do not be afraid. He tells them to resist fear by remembering that the key to victory had nothing to do with their own strength but everything to do with the strength of God, who was going to give them the land. The way that Israel is going to receive the land that God had appointed for them is the same way that God's people are meant to receive all things and overcome all threats by faith. Moses gives us two key ways that God's people are called to fight the enemy of fear, both having to do with faith. First, God's people are to remember God's work of salvation. Remember God's work of salvation. Check out verse 18. Moses says, You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So... Will the Lord your God <clears throat> do to all people of whom you are afraid? Faith in God for the present stands on the memory of God's faithfulness in the past. Faith for in God for the present stands on the memory of God's faithfulness in the past. When God brought Israel out of their enslavement to Egypt, he ripped them out of the hand of one of the biggest baddest empires that the world has ever seen. God didn't wrestle Israel out of the clutches of a minor world power. He took them from the best the world had to offer. Actually, we're told in the scriptures that God says he raised Pharaoh up with all his false gods to the greatest height, and in power he cast them down to show the world that there is only one sovereign God of all the earth. One God who rules over all things. 
He made Egypt be glad to get rid of Israel. He rescued and redeemed them to be his people. And as he did, he left Pharaoh, one of the strongest kings, reeling in the wake. As God ushered Israel out of Egypt, he left the oppressors of his people as a broken example to the world of the sort of judgment that he brings on those who refuse to honor him. The whole world had seen in Egypt that the Lord is God of all the earth. So Moses reminds the people of Egypt because he wanted them to understand that they were not going to be able to overcome the forces of Canaan in their own power, nor was God expecting them to. No, God was winning the victory for them. All Israel needed to do was to trust the Lord, to defy their fear, and to go forth in faith. The Bible is very careful to give us a record of human history which is meticulous to show God's dedication to his work of redemption. From Adam and Eve to Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Daniel, Nehemiah, and ultimately to Jesus, the Bible tells us the story of how God has worked to redeem his people by his own mighty hand. He has shown time and time again that there is no power that can overcome him, no empire or emperor that can overthrow his purposes, no act that can derail his purpose to establish his king and save his people. The Bible records both the good and the bad so that we can see the beauty of God's glory and the power of his sovereignty so that we may see the sharpness of his justice and the depth of his love. In spite of our shortcomings, God never fails. And so while we may have every reason to fear because we see our own powerlessness to save ourselves from the sin that enslaves us, in Christ we have every reason to cast that fear off because by faith we have received a spirit of sonship by which we cry out to God, the God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and call him Abba, Father. Just as Moses told Israel to face their fear by remembering what God had done to redeem them from Egypt, so we are called to fight fear by remembering how God has saved us by sending his own son to the cross so that we might not perish but have eternal life through faith in him and what he has done for us. The second way that Moses equips the people to fight fear is by telling them to trust the word of the Lord. So we, we remember the work of God and we trust the word of God. Moses reminds the people of Israel that the God who, had, who was with their parents in Egypt to bring them out with unmistakably with his mighty right arm is the same God who is going with them into the land of Canaan. In verse 21, Moses says, You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. There is no comfort you can hope to have that is greater than the comfort of having the presence of God with you. When Paul was going through his trials and his sufferings in Asia, it was the presence of the Lord that kept him from despair and made him willing to risk it all for the sake of knowing Christ and making him known. When Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, 
He told his disciples that where he was going, they could not come with him. But then he told them that he would send to them a comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would be with them, who would equip them and empower them for the work that he had appointed for them to do. That same spirit is the gift, the guarantee that belongs to every believer. The Holy Spirit seals believers from, for heaven. He goes with us into the fray to give us strength and wisdom to obey. Our God is with us. What shall we fear? Shall we not go boldly? The real power of fear is intimidation. Like a shadow cast on the wall looming over us, fear will try to make you cower and even run away. But as every parent knows, as intimidating as a shadow may appear, they can never actually harm us unless we give in to them. And they quickly disappear in the light of the sun. So it is with fear. Brothers and sisters, our Lord has already won the battle. The shadow of fear diminishes quickly in the light of the victory of Christ's cross. The world may threaten to undo us, but it can never ultimately harm us. The shadow cast by fear diminishes very quickly when we bring it into the noonday sun of the glory of King Jesus. And so it is that we face and overcome this enemy of fear by falling on our faces before the throne of Christ. Whatever is making you afraid this morning, whatever griefs and anxieties you are going through, whatever is threatening you, whatever has its grip on your heart right now, whatever is filling you with dread and distracting you from the mission, bring it before the Lord. Raise up that shield of faith and find refuge and strength for your souls in the presence of our faithful God who calls us to live by faith in his word and to trust his faithfulness to work. So fight your fear. In addition to facing this enemy of fear, there's a second enemy that poses a threat to us, which we must face and overcome by faith, and that is the enemy of dissatisfaction. Moses' voice is filled with certainty here as he talks about how Israel is going to receive the promised land. The kings of Canaan and all their forces, they are no match for the Lord. And even though Moses knows he is not going to enter the land himself, he knows without a shadow of a doubt that God was going to give what he had promised to this generation. As you read the book of Deuteronomy, as you read the beginning of the book of Joshua, you, there is no doubt in Moses' mind, this land is yours. Moses was as certain that God was going to deliver the, this land over to Israel as he was about the sun coming up the next day. Certain though he was, Moses says something in verse 22 that, that might strike you a little bit, might surprise you. You see, God says, God tells Moses and Moses tells the people that he is not going to clear the land of these enemy nations all at once. Moses says, the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you, little by little. You may not make an end of them at once or quickly, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are all destroyed. Now, there's three things we need to notice here. First, notice the certainty of God's promise. 
God meant for Israel to know for certain that the land is going to be given over to them. No king is going to prove to be too great for them. No people is going to be able to resist them. As long as Israel is faithful to the Lord, Moses says, God will give their kings into your hand and you will make their name perish from under heaven. No one will be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them all. There is always certainty in God's promises, and this is no exception. God said he was going to give Israel the land. The second thing we need to notice here is that there is a process to the work that is going to require the people to have patience. It requires patience. The victory over the Canaanite people is going to be gradual. Moses tells the people that God is going to give the Canaanites over to them little by little. He's going to cast these people into confusion. The kings are going to be powerless against them. But Israel is not going to receive the land in one grand victory. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But no, what's going to happen here is going to require the people to commit themselves to the task, trusting God to give them victory little by little as they set themselves to the task he had given them. The third thing to notice here is that there is a purpose for this. God had a reason for giving the land over to Israel gradually rather than all at once. The land that Israel was receiving was a land that was fit for their growth. Ever, you ever look at a house and think to yourself, oh, that's very nice. That would fit what we need, but we want to have kids. I remember when Ellie and I were looking for a vehicle, and we were looking at all these options. We can get something that has this. Well, uh, it's got to have a third row because well, we want to have more kids. So this land that God is giving over to Israel was going to be able to hold them, not just in their current state, but it was going to be a place for God was going to bless and multiply them further. He was bringing them to a home that could support them as he made their tents even larger. God's purpose in the conquest was to overthrow the Canaanites in judgment for their sin, but it was not to destroy the land itself. And so in the second part of verse 22, Moses explains that if God did make an end to all the Canaanites at once, the land would grow wild and untamed. It would need to be tamed again as Israel grew to fill it. So we see that there's a very practical purpose for God gradually giving the land over to Israel. God meant for them to receive a land that he had prepared for them that was already full of these blessings. He meant to give them blessings they had not labored for, to bless them with homes and fields and cities and wells as a gift of his grace, not wages to be earned. This is why God had determined to give the land to Israel bit by bit. And so Moses says this to the people, first, so they would understand how God was giving the land to them, and second, to make sure that the people endured in completing the task that God was setting in front of them. This is not going to be over in a night. It's going to be gradual. We all want quick fixes to our problems. You ever get frustrated with a microwave because it doesn't warm your soup up fast enough? You have to pull it out and keep stirring it? It is hard to remain focused and motivated when things get drawn out to be longer than we might wish or expect. How many of you are waiting on God to answer prayer requests? That You've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Do you ever struggle to keep praying for that? Moses told the people, he's told the people over and over and over 
how important it is that the Israelites see they make a complete end of the Canaanites. If they don't, Moses says, your hearts will be drawn away from the Lord. You will go into idolatry and you will get destroyed just the same way as the Canaanites are. With what he says in verse 22, he's trying to make a point to the people that they're going to have to be on guard against not just the enemy of their fear, but the enemy of dissatisfaction, the enemy that will cause us to compromise. Moses is warning the people not to fall short of finishing the task because of their own impatience. He is warning them not to grow weary of the work that God had appointed for them to do, of driving these other nations out. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, uh, Koheleth, or the preacher, it's, I think it's Solomon, says that the end of a thing is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud one. It takes patience and endurance to see things through. You will never meet a student who is more excited about their classes than a freshman, and you will never meet a student who is more ready to be done than a senior. It takes endurance to get that degree. And so it is with salvation and the way of holiness that God calls his people to. He calls us to walk a path. Over and over and over again, Jesus warns his disciples that the path of being his disciple is hard. That is why he tells us to count the cost of following him. It is worth the effort, but that doesn't mean that it is easy. Jesus calls his disciples to deny themselves, to take up a cross and to follow him. Now, being a Christian is more than just making a decision to believe Jesus died for you for your sins. Being a Christian is to follow Jesus on that path. And while in the order of salvation, we are all justified the very moment we trust in Christ, we are also in that moment placed on that path of sanctification, where slowly but surely, through all sorts of ups and downs, we grow steadily into maturity in our faith, becoming more and more Christ-like daily. In this life, we battle with sin and our flesh. We stumble, and by God's grace, we rise. What we will be, we are still in the process of becoming. And this is why Jesus says to his disciples, you must endure to the end, persevere in pressing into those promises of God, in engaging in this warfare with the flesh, in doing those good deeds that God has prepared beforehand for us to do, we are not earning our salvation. We are growing into our inheritance, living as obedient sons and daughters to the call of our Heavenly Father. But this takes patience. I have often wished that God would just sanctify me in a moment, but the battle I have with my sin and with the struggles of my flesh would just be done. I haven't met a single Christian who doesn't wish to be done with the struggle. Hollywood makes war out to be glamorous. It is not. And the war with sin is not glamorous. But God's purpose and his plan for his people is not to give us that sanctification in an instant. And I think that is in part because he delights in making our inheritance more glorious gradually showing us how deep his grace really is, how glorious his mercy really is, so that when we stand before him and receive the inheritance of eternal life that is ours in Christ, we will stand as decorated soldiers, 
We will cast our victory crowns before him and fall on our faces. And in doing so, we will offer up a praise that is truly fitting of what he has done and what he is doing. To do that, brothers and sisters, we must fight the enemy of discontent. Fear may try to intimidate you from following Christ. Discontent will try to make you draw up a stalemate. Raise the black flag against your sin. Devote it to destruction. By God's grace, we must take on industry and faithfulness by making our hearts glad in the sure inheritance that Christ has won, and we must commit ourselves to walking the path that was set before us, just as Jesus went to the cross and endured all of the suffering with patience and determination. Now, there is a third enemy that we must be on our guard to face, and it is the enemy of idolatry and a covetous heart. In verses 25 and 26, Moses tells the people that in addition to making a complete end of the Canaanites, they must also make a complete end of their idols and their false gods. He tells them that the people are to burn them with fire. And he warns them, you shall not cover the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, so here's the situation I can imagine. You can imagine the Israelites coming through and coming into these temples and seeing these idols there and going, oh, we're going to destroy this. We're going to burn it to the ground. But then, well, let's just take that gold off there real quick. I mean, that's pretty valuable. We'll hammer it out. It won't have the image on there. I really could deal with a, a new necklace to show how good of a warrior I am. You can just imagine them being tempted to burn down those, wo- those wooden totems, but then to take the gold and the silver with them. After all, God made the silver and the gold. Why not? Why shouldn't I have it? But Moses tells the people to make a complete end of all the things, despite the value. Why? Because he tells them that if they don't, they are stepping into a trap. The land needed to be cleansed. And that included making a complete end of everything involved in the worship of these false gods. Israel's holiness is on the line. Their devotion to the Lord and obedience to the Lord is on the line with this command. To make a complete end to these false gods, we need to see sin for the abominable, grotesque thing that it is. Because until we do, sin will always have an allure to our hearts. In Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, there's a moment where Isildur, one of the great kings of men, has just managed to defeat the unstoppable evil Lord Sauron on the field of battle. He's cut his hand off and his ring falls from him and he has it. This this ring has incredible power because the soul of Sauron is is tied to it. It's a fantasy book, so you just have to just, just explain things away. Okay, so Sauron is like in the ring. And Isildur has a chance to destroy it. And he's standing above the fires of the volcano of Mount Doom, where the ring was forged. And he is holding it. And he has every opportunity in the world to cast that ring into the fire and to make an end of it forever. But in the little time that he possesses it, the ring catches his eye. And as it does, it corrupts his heart. He begins to think to himself how powerful He can be how much in a position this will give him a chance to do good in the world. 
And so he keeps the ring. And in the end, it leads not only to his death, but the toppling of his kingdom and the shaming of his whole line. It's really a picture of Adam, isn't it? In this same way that Isildur's lust for power destroyed him, so the gold and the silver of these false Canaanites gods had the power to destroy Israel too. Not because they had some soul attached to them, because the Lord knew the corruption of their own hearts and how easily they could be distracted if they coveted the gold and the silver. In verse 26, Moses tells the people, you shall not bring an abominable thing in your house. It's like bringing a king cobra into your house. Why would you do that? You must devote it to destruction. He says, if you do, you will become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it for it is devoted to destruction. God won a greater inheritance for his people than silver and gold. He has purchased eternal life for us. He has made a place for us, despite our sin, to redeem us and give us a place in his own house. He has secured a place of eternal riches with him in his kingdom as heirs with his son for all who believe in him. Why would we then ever invite corrupt things into our home or into our lives to corrupt and destroy that? Don't risk it. The reality is that as strong as we may think we are, John Calvin has said rightly that the human heart is a proverbial idol factory. We are masters of taking good things and corrupting them into false gods who we then cry out to give us safety, security, satisfaction, comfort. Israel's greatest gift was never the land of Canaan. It was God. The land was only part of the blessing that God graciously gave them, and it served in the future as a litmus test to show their relationship with him. We must remember that every good thing in our lives is a gift from God, but those blessings were never meant to be ultimate. Our treasure is in the Lord. And idolatry can be a subtle enemy, but it is strong. There's a reason the Apostle John's last command in his first epistle is, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It is more dangerous and more pervasive than you think. So we must be diligent to to test our hearts, to ask ourselves if we have allowed something to come between us and God to become ranked first in our heart. It is so easy to covet what others have. It is so easy to wish that we had the blessings that they had received. Actually, if we look at the first two enemies we talked about, fear and discontent, dissatisfaction, we'll find that oftentimes the three of them, the three of these enemies come at the same time. We may fear we're going to lose what we have or fear we won't get what we want. We get dissatisfied with how long this is taking, and we begin to satisfy ourselves with lesser things. And then we look at what other people have, other blessings, and we think, ah, my life would be so much happier if I had that. And that is the same path that Adam and Eve walked when they took the forbidden fruit. To fight covetousness and to fight idolatry, we must be careful to always satisfy ourselves in the greatest treasure that is our God so that we may combat idolatry with a heart of humility and a heart of thankfulness. 
In Christ, we have received an eternal inheritance beyond anything this world could ever offer to us. So we must fix our eyes upon that and resist the allure of temporary treasures. We must enlarge our desires by setting our hearts on eternity and on the one who sits on an eternal throne. Friends, satisfy your hearts in God and be content with nothing less. The life of a Christian is rewarding, but it is hard because it is lived in warfare. To live as God has called us to do is a task that is beyond our own strength and our own ability, but God is gracious. He is with us. And as we face these enemies, the enemy of fear, the enemy of dissatisfaction, the enemy of a covetous heart and idolatry, let us do so in the grace that God provides, always looking to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross for us, and in doing so has paved the way for us to have life in his name. Let's live in his victory, and let's rage against the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, it seems fitting that we should talk about the greatness of the task ahead of us. As we have sung this morning how you are a mighty fortress for us, Lord, we give ourselves to you and ask that you would give us hearts of faith that overcome. And Lord, we confess to you our desires to be with you. We, we are, this, this, is, this is not an easy path. And yet, Lord, you've called us to this for your own glory, and you know best, and your wisdom, your goal is to exalt you and, and to delight our hearts in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us strength in our faith to walk accordingly. Lord, we pray that, I pray that you would guard our hearts from these enemies. There are other enemies we face, but especially this morning, we pray, guard our hearts from fear. Guard our hearts from becoming dissatisfied and walking away. And guard our hearts from coveting and from idolatry. Lord, these things have the power to destroy us, but not as long as you are with us. And so by faith, we, we confess our, our hope in Christ, and we entrust ourselves to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.